They've got questions to answer, but can they deliver? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark left into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. But James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of F1 in Review, the episode, the hour and part two, where we look back at round five of the first ever Miami Grand Prix and also look forwards to the Barcelona Grand Prix, which is coming this weekend. I'm Tom Claiborne. I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher. As always, you can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter, as well as the F1 in Review account there. And going on to our first topic now, I believe it was two episodes ago we were discussing how Hass's Mick Schumacher, the son of the seven-time world champion, had how we've been getting on really in terms of a year and a bit in Formula One. And I think it's fair to say we concluded that uh, the surname meant he was getting an easier ride versus, let's say, your Latifi, your Strolls, and those who hadn't really delivered too much since they've been in the sports. Now, if we rewind to lap 52, I believe, of the, the Miami Grand Prix, he was very close to redeeming himself, to showing how good he could be, getting himself two points, sandwiched between two Alpines, and about to uh, secure those two points, right? Well, unfortunately not. Things went horribly wrong when uh, Ocon and Vettel got into a scrap with him. Vettel overtook Mick Schumacher. Schumacher then tried to get him back. I believe he's on turn one and effectively just launched himself in to the Aston Martin car. Both then DNF'd zero points for Mick Schumacher, and then he uttered the famous words, that was clearly my corner. And after some extensive research... Consultation with uh, fact checkers, we can confirm exclusively here on F1 in Review that claim is not true. He was not indeed <laughs> the man to get that yeah. corner. But in all seriousness, what do we make though of uh, the young German throwing away his first ever potential points in Formula One? You know, he's got a very good car, as we say. He's now got a teammate that can really take the fight to him and beat him. He's in a position now where you really think he would have kept his nose clean and um, not gone in for that corner that wasn't his. We'd be saying, oh, well done, Mick Schumacher. Well done, you're showing your potential. Uh, but as I say, that is not to be. What do we make of that? Sort of a, a one-off mistake or a sign of something more serious, maybe? Well, it's all our fault, isn't it? Because I think in the our chat, we said, God, this is going to be a great result for Mick Schumacher. Fantastic result for Mick Schumacher prematurely. And then, of course, he bins it, which is an absolute shame. I suppose we left last week discussing Alex Albon and a certain Ocon, who I would say they did the right things throughout. They positioned themselves quite well throughout the Grand Prix. And especially Albon has done that now twice for a team that isn't very competitive in, in that Williams. 
he's been in the situation where he can bank a couple of points if he's a bit lucky. So he just sort of hangs back and, and keeps it calm, collective, and then boom, something else happens up the road. You've accidentally found yourself in the points. And I think that's something that makes a driver like Alex Albon stand out to a lot of teams. Because the greatest drivers in the world have the ability to do that. Nicky Lauda, for example, with his stint in, in Ferrari, was great at, at pushing the car, but also not taking too many risks. Lewis Hamilton, also a very, very clean driver, it knows when to give things up and, and just to bank the the points, bank the win if it in, in some cases, you know. Um and unfortunately my Mick I think he just wanted that extra glory, which is so frustrating for us Mick fans because we want him just to get some points. Not <laughs> many. One will do. Just just one. Get get into the points and once you're over that threshold, I think things get easier. Do you remember we were waiting for George Russell to get points for absolutely ages? And then once one came, they all sort of flooded in. So I think that Mick just needs to get over that hump. And and at the moment, he's not in a position to take risks to try and get that, like I don't know, extra run up the, the ladder. He's already got it by by the fact that you know, he is Mick Schumacher. He is Schumacher's heir to the, the Ferrari uh, lineage, if you'd like. And I don't think he needs to prove himself other than just, you know, being a good driver. So I feel like what happened at the Miami Grand Prix was he wanted to prove himself as the next Michael Schumacher, you know, following in his father's well, tremendously large footsteps and ended up putting it into a wall. So that's a problem what they do about that i'm not totally sure i think they need to say to him you know if you're in the points next time we want you to run a nice smooth race you don't think you can make the corner don't make it you know that sort of mentality if you don't need to take a risk don't take a risk it's not like he was going from like 11th to 10th and this was his you know vital moment for i don't know <laughs> his own little world championship it wasn't. It was lap 52 of a Miami Grand Prix, a race in which he should have just coasted to the end and claimed those points. And we would have all been sitting here going, the spell is over. That's it. Fantastic. Because bear in mind, the, the podcast before the Miami Grand Prix, we were all sitting here going, oh, I can't believe Mick's not got any points. So I thought I was going to be eating my words and feeling all embarrassed at our predictions that Mick wouldn't get some points for a bit longer. We're going to come into... Uh, well, going to be proven wrong. But alas, unfortunately, we were proved right. So yes, Mick, if you're listening, hello. Secondly, just sit back, take those points. Don't don't take a risk. Picture yourself in a Williams. Think, what would the Williams team do? Not take risks. That's the answer. You say you say the Williams team would, wouldn't risk it, but I was trying to think of a comparable example to Mick's situation. And hear me out. George Russell in his early William years, Williams years, because he had chances to score points. And just from memory, if you think of that time at Imola in 2020, where he was in the points and he crashed out under a safety car. Oh, yeah, Imola 2021, yeah. where he crashed with Bottas in that infamous incident. 
uh, just a couple of times where George Russell had the chance for points. Uh, Mugello, I think it was, in 2020, where he, it was a pretty attritional race and he was, had a pace advantage over the Ferraris and the Alfa, and the, um, Alfa Romeos, but he couldn't quite pull off the points finish. It's, there are similarities with that, I think. The thing is, George Russell had showed promise, and we were all kind of like, oh, it's a bit, it's not great from him, but, you know, it's coming. The first points are coming, the potential's there. Clearly, he's very, very good. I mean, he was a back-to-back F3 and F2 champion, after all. I mentioned this on the podcast a few weeks ago, about Mick Schumacher's peculiar record in junior formulae uh, on the road up to Formula 1, because... He has a very he has a very um interesting record of being able to not have an amazing first year but then ace it second year. So Formula Four, tenth in year one, second in year two. Uh Italian Formula Three uh, sorry, Formula Three, twelfth in year one, first in year two. Formula two, twelfth in year one, first in year two. So he keeps on delivering the goods in year two. Now clearly F1's a different beast. He's not in a championship or a title or a race-winning car. But you'd still expect him to be doing the business a bit. Kevin Magnussen comes straight back in. Experienced driver, yes, I'll give you that. Knows the team well. But he's had a year out of the sport. He had about, not even exaggerating, about three working days to get used to the Haas car before he had to rock up in Bahrain and drive it at the first practice session. Mick Schumacher should be doing better. <clears throat> he just should. This race was an absolutely perfect opportunity for him to bag those first points because it was a little bit of a chaotic race but he had a decent car faster cars who qualified ahead of him in Gasly and Norris had crashed out and they weren't there as a threat he'd managed to get himself ahead of some other faster cars like Fernando Alonso, Yuki Tsunoda, Daniel Ricciardo, Esteban Ocon was there and thereabouts and he finished in the points in the end he was ahead of Alex Albon by the time he crashed out or had the collision, we should say. And he just... Yeah, he, I'm sorry, he has to do better. It just makes it a whole lot worse that um, it was his his Formula 1 dad who he punted off the track. <laughs> um, poor Sebastian Vettel <laughs> getting, oh, yeah. being on the receiving end. And I thought Vettel was very diplomatic uh, after the race about it because if I was him, I'd be absolutely fuming because it was Vettel's corner, Schumacher's gone in for a lunch, poor Mick on the radio is sort of... He's he's crashed into him, and then the voice he's the voice tone which he's portraying as he's realised his mistake is one of a is one of a, a small child who's lost their favourite football at the back in the back garden, or um, lost their lost their favourite toy underneath underneath mounds of clothes in the cupboard. He just sounded devastated. He's absolutely devastated, mm. and as much as the temptation of people to be like, oh, don't worry, Mick, it's okay, sweetheart, it's okay, it's all right, you'll get those first points. Um, what if he never gets those first points? No, I'm joking, I'm sure he will, but, <laughs> but at the same that's time... That's what Mick's in her yeah. mind's going, yeah, get them. but at the same time, Formula One is ruthless, and yeah. to be honest, based on his name and his Ferrari affiliation, he is arguably the safest of those drivers that we consider out of the elite or out of the midfield. The ones, i.e. the rookies or the ones who we maybe don't rate as highly. Um, Schumacher, say, is top of that pile because of his because of other factors too. And also because he did he did put up a good performance in that Haas in year one. But as is now being uncovered, benchmark in year one said Mr. Mazepin was very low. Benchmark in year two, Mr. Magnussen is quite a bit higher at the moment. He's not really matching up to it. So, 
he has to step it up, to be honest with you. But at the same time, he has the car. And you like to think, if we get, if I go full circle and back to that George Russell comparison, Russell in that Williams car in 2020, for example, there wasn't a fast car. And you didn't feel he'd get around the points that often. So when he missed out on an opportunity, you were kind of, you felt he'd be, you'd feel like he'd be reeling a bit because it would be a real opportunity. But Schumacher has been in and around the points in, what, maybe three or four out of the five races. So it's just a case of finishing the job, really. So I'm sure it will come, but, I mean, for his sake, it needs to be in Barcelona. It can't be in Canada or, or Silverstone that he gets those points. He needs to get them now, ASAP. Yeah, I fear this is a, me- a mentality issue versus a talent issue. We know how well he's done in the formulas below and Formula 2 and 3, as we're saying. You know, you, you can't win it and be a bad driver. That's simply you know, not possible, I'd argue. But then again, not every F2 winner does very well in Formula 1. And the more that Mick Schumacher continues to race and not do very well, the more I compare him maybe to Stoffel Van Dorn, who came into the sport. So many bells and whistle- whistles attached to him. He was meant to be, uh, you know, the next big thing for McLaren and then we look at his final season in 2018 scores points four times gets kicked out so you wonder to yourself is history repeating itself have we overhyped Mick Schumacher owing to a his record and b his name and that's you know not really helping the situation because I think it's you know it's obvious in any part of life really when you overthink something and when you have to wait for something you can't get something and you know you screw something up and you know you just don't get it then you know fear attaches itself to it doesn't it so I fear that he's very much in the trenches when it comes to that and we've seen how badly that can affect drivers you know previously not only your Gasly's and your Albon's in the sort of Red Bull circus of the second seat, as was well documented in Drive to Survive, but Grosjean as well, when he was in his last few years at Haas, he had a shocking run of form where, you know, he crashed under the safety car at Baku, I believe. We're now seeing it with Ricardo, where he's not really scoring many points. I think he's only scored points once so far out of the first five races, and he didn't really have a very good season last time out when he was a debutant for McLaren. So... I think this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a mentality issue. And the question is, can Mick Schumacher overcome it? Well, he's 24 years old, I believe. He's a young man, so there is time on his side. He also has the tools, as we say. I don't think Haas is nearly as good as we thought it would be after the first Bahrain race, but it's still very competitive. I think it's better, per se, than the uh, Alpha Tauri. It can definitely give the the Alfa Romeo run for its money but then again I'd argue that Bottas is a better driver and in some a rich vein of form really as well which makes it even worse for those two so he's not got that excuse anymore but the opposition the critique and the questions are now starting to build and it's time for Mick to pull it out of the bag and I fear that he realized he was in the points got a bit too panicked and then it just didn't work out and I just hope that cycle of fear doesn't repeat itself but um I mean, could you guys see them dumping Schumacher for the next season? Let's say that he has an awful uh, rest of the season, doesn't score any points, no higher than, let's say, 12th or 13th, and Steiner and and uh, Gene has himself go, well, sorry, kiddo, there's someone else around the corner, Piastri maybe. If Alonso signs again with Alpine, for example, Piastri will be there going, hi, guys, I'm free, I'd like to drive a Formula 1 car, and then go, well, let's spin the wheel, let's have a go. What do you think? I don't think, I don't think they're going to... Uh, drop him because he's only had one year in this new era of Formula One with the that type of car, which seems to be very, very different. So if Angus's analysis of the time it takes Schumacher to get up to speed is correct, 
then this is year one. And so he will be kept on for next year. See how he does the end of next year. But there's a there's a term that we use in golf, actually, for, for this kind of situation. It's, it's, you know, steadying the ship. And what we apply there is when, you know, you're having a bad round and each each hole is is going worse than the last. And then you just have to take it back a notch. Play a safe bogey, then up to the pars and then see if you can get a birdie after that, rather than trying to attack each hole and getting more and more angry with it. And that's the same thing as, as Mick's got to do. I think I feel like at the moment he's just got to steady the ship. Maybe he's got to get the 11th places and then the 10th and then the 9th and then his moment will come. Once no, he, he's... he needs points. He needs no, points. No, but he, he doesn't need points. He just needs to be consistent. There's... Because at the end of the day, if Magnussen's doing a good enough job for the team now, then that gives Schumacher a little bit of headroom to get his head in gear because this is the problem we, we that Alex Albon had at Red Bull or you know, Pierre Gasly had at Red Bull. No one gave him the breathing room or, or either than the breathing room to get themselves in a comfortable position within their own head. They said, why aren't you delivering? Max is getting first places. You're not getting first places. Now you're seventh, you're ninth, you're 13th. You're being lapped. Look at this. And then what happens? It's a downward spiral. You've got to give them time, Angus, to steady the ship, surely. He's only he's so young. You gotta give him time. Yeah, I give I get you that. But also, Formula One's a ruthless sport. And also I would argue it's it's a fair, it's an interesting comparison with Gasly and Albon, because yes, you could the gap was wide in all those instances, but that was fighting that took on a higher stakes because Red Bull was aiming to be fighting Mercedes for wins and podiums. And when you have two drivers up there, you're much more effective. Whilst here they're not has I feel in the midfield battle and you're never fighting against a direct rival unless he comes to the end of a season. At that point you're just trying to scramble as many points as you can and trying to get as much of a head start on your rivals as possible. Maybe towards the end of the season if Haas, for example, are in a battle with Alpha Tauri or Alpha Romeo for sixth or seventh, then they might say, Okay, right, we need the both drivers up there to get points. But at the moment, it's just a case of basically hoovering up as many points as they can. Um, but ugh, I feel like maybe maybe I've gone from being all nice on Mick to right, come on Mick, step it up, pal. Um, but I think I just think it's it's less of a good look the longer he doesn't get those first points. To be honest, and the only reason I raise that question is because his current contract with Haas runs out at the end of this year. So technically, Haas will be under no obligation, legal or otherwise, to keep him on. The question then is what happens to him in terms of Ferrari? Do they get rid of uh, Giovinazzi and he becomes the reserve driver then? But is that an upgrade? I suppose you're in a bigger camp, but you're not driving, are you? And as we saw, you know, in many cases, once you get out of uh, one of the two seats, it's then a lot harder to get back in. And, I mean, maybe we're, I'm being unfair by saying this, but Guan Yu Zhou's already scored points. And he's only had five races. And I realised that Schumacher got 11th in Bahrain. And, you know, in another universe, he'd have been 10th. Guan Yu Zhou would be 11th would be going, oh, for God's sake, Joe, just go and get some points, man. But the facts are the facts as they are. And the, there's bigger questions now, I think, for Schumacher to answer. And I think that's largely because of his name as well. Because it's very much come as a, as a gift in many ways of, oh, he's Michael Schumacher's son. No doubt it'll be very good. But then again, when... 
you're compared to him and Ralph, and they go, well, you're a Schumacher, why can't you get us some points? Arguably, the sort of the coin spins and then the more negative aspects come out of it. To his advantage, they are, of course, only five races into a blockbuster season. There's so much time for him to go and get it back, but um, I think it's fair to go and say that he's not really had an improved start as many other drivers have had. Notably, when you consider that Joe and Albon, who have come into the sport, and Magnussen, fresh into the sport, I understand new regulations, but they've had a break or not had experience in terms of Formula One racing, yet they're outperforming, which does raise questions. Yeah, but it's not like it's not like Mick wasn't going to get the points. You see, this is, I suppose, the the weird thing about what, what we're analysing here is... Mick was on the on on course for points, good points, and and steady points, right? And he he went and tried to do the extra extra step, that sort of glory moment, which everyone always wants, but very few can pull off. And that's kind of why it's such an interesting debate about what what we do with Mick, <laughs> because if he hadn't of of done that extra step then he would have been getting points and we would all be sitting here going congratulations mick that the curse is lifted right and but what what i think my takeaway was was he can do it well there you go he he's already done it once he got to the three laps from the end and then he made that mistake he sure as hell won't do it again so i don't think it's good to punish someone on their way up just because they made a mistake at the final hurdle. The the last push is always the hardest one. And and so I think that's where we're at with Mick. If Mick was trundling along at the back, consistently at the back, with no hope of getting up into the points, I think it'd be a different debate. But look, pessimistically, he brings, brings in a lot of sponsorship. Haas just opened up their new merch store, which I'd like to say is quite reasonably priced, Tom. I know you're a Haas fan. Hey. Uh, so, and and so, who doesn't want to go on and get a uh, you know a Mick Schumacher t-shirt or hoodie or something? That's that's one half of it. So no, from that perspective, I don't think they'll get rid of him. Especially as Haas could do with the sponsorship money now that you know their their main backer is disappeared. And secondly, he's proved himself that he could do it, which is all we need. They just need that moment of magic. I mean, blimey, if you were really pessimistic, you'd have looked at, let's say, Charles Leclerc last year, finishing behind Sainz and then being like, wow, we should drop Leclerc then because he's the inferior driver. Hey, that would have aged like milk. So in my humble opinion, he will be kept on for sponsorship reasons and because he can do it and has want to be the one promoting, you know, the next Michael Schumacher. Well, (laughs) pretty much is the next Michael Schumacher. You know, if you if you'd like, so yeah, I just I just don't think they're going to drop mm. him. Yeah, we could be all day in terms of this topic, so we might as well move on to topic two. This being Mercedes, the current constructors' champions, if you can believe that. Not a brilliant qualifying, it's fair to say, in terms of Russell qualifying twelfth, Hamilton sixth. But as has been the case seemingly in every race, they've pulled it out the bag. George Russell is the only driver on the grid, fun fact, who finished in the top five 
every single race, granted only five. And Hamilton redeemed himself after a, a poor start, shall we say. Uh, got himself back up there and was overtaken by George Russell. Um, George Russell, of course, being aided significantly by the overcut that he deployed rather successfully after his friend uh, Lando Norris crashed or was um, taken out, shall we say. And the Bottas mistake of the death also helped, gifting, of course, more points to Mercedes. Um, but still, there remains problems, doesn't there, in terms of how Mercedes understand their car and how they can get the best out of it. They did so well in practice. We thought to ourselves, are Mercedes quote-unquote back? Have they solved the porpoising issues? But the performance drop-off really between Friday and Sunday has got Toto Wolff and everyone talking really. He says they're still in no man's land, they haven't been in the situation before, don't we know it, and drivers are understandably not too happy. So what do we make though of Mercedes after five races? Because if we're looking at it from a sort of granular perspective of race to race and you compare them to 2021, you'd say, well, they're nowhere near where they were. They've dropped off clearly. It's been a bit of a failure of a season. But on the more positive side, on the broad brush uh, situation here, they're still third in the Constructors' Championship. They've got drivers scoring points on all occasions bar one. And don't remember that with Lewis Hamilton. So you think to yourselves, as we say many a time in these episodes of the F1 in Review, if they can solve the issues... It's all hunky-dory. They're back up there with Red Bull, with Ferrari. They're back up there potentially getting a podium or two when they could salvage something and have a, yes, a drop-off from last season, but still a rather respectable season. But, of course, if the, if the situation continues where they still don't know uh, the granular details of the car and how to get the best out of them, you go, is this the beginning of the end of Mercedes being a powerhouse in its current form in terms of Formula 1 if they're just so behind two big teams? But uh, what do you guys think? I think Mercedes, again, I don't know, because it was such a weird weekend for them. Because if we cast our mind back, again, it seems ages, but those practice sessions, they aced it. They were top of the charts. You had Charles Leclerc saying, well, we didn't expect Mercedes to be up top. It looked like they might have found something. And you thought, right, this is it. Three-team title battle. Here we go. This is what we wanted. And then qualifying happened. And we're back to reality. So Hamilton sixth behind Bottas again makes you chuckle every time that happens. I'm sure it makes <laughs> Valtteri Bottas more than chuckle. Um, George Russell down in twelfth, very tight Q2, admittedly, but still not getting through to Q3. Not not great realistically. The race, I think they both have to have credit for getting it back to where it could be. Hamilton was running fifth for most of the race. Uh, and then Russell, towards the end, came in, got lucky with the safety car, admittedly. But at the same time, you could also argue, I remember him being on the radio to his engineers, saying, let's stay out here for a bit, hold out, there might be a safety car. And and this was around about lap 40, when he'd already spent 40 laps on his hard tyres. And I know they're hard tyres, but still, that's a long time to preserve one set of tyres. And his call was correct, so fair, fair play to him for judging that as well as he did. And it meant that it ended up being a semi-successful race for Mercedes in the end. 18 points, it's about the maximum they can get these days, with Red Bull and uh, Ferrari being far ahead. And yeah, George Russell once again, top five finishes in every single race so far this season. And I know he's in a Mercedes now, but considering... Before this season, he'd only ever finished in the top five once. That's still impressive assimilation to 
come in and be at that high level straight away. Lewis Hamilton, meanwhile, I mean, there was more focus on what his off-track, um, I was about to say misdemeanours, but he's done nothing wrong, realistically. We're talking about the jewellery situation, for those of you who aren't aware. So the FYA clamping down on jewellery in the uh, on drivers, and Hamilton taking the absolute mick by coming to the press conference with three watches, five gold chains, and about eight or nine rings on his fingers. Um, I just wish you could pull that off, Angus. That's what it is. <laughs> never try, mate. Would never try. Um, but yeah, in overall, they probably got they probably squeezed the pip of the orange Mercedes in terms of what they could have got. And they're talking about upgrades. I believe, from what I remember, there's another upgrade coming in Spain. So we'll have to see how that goes. But at the moment, they're not. I want to use the phrase "stuck in a mire." And, but, but they're not really, because if you're getting the points that they are, so that's, they got 95 points across five races, 19 points a weekend ain't bad. But just compared to the high standards we expected them, when you win seven Constructors' Championships in a row, eight, sorry, eight in a row, 2014, 2021, every year, to then go to what they're at this year, it is a letdown. Um and I say this again, I said it right at the start of the season, if any team can come back and upgrade and recover, it's Mercedes. <laughs> um, come on, Mercedes, step it up. My my uh, my words are sounding like uh, sounding incorrect at the moment. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Such a weird one because they're again in this no man's land where they're, they're 50 plus points behind Red Bull and about 50 points ahead of McLaren. So yeah, it's a weird situation they're in. Weird situation for them at least. Supposedly, well, Toto Wolf has announced earlier this week that they found an easy way out of their situation. I, I wish I had something more oh, pithy okay. to say than that um, about <laughs> it, really. But he's, I, I don't know whether or not he's like, he's just, oh, yeah, we found a way. Uh, because they're not, they said, he said he's like, they're not catapulting it in and bringing it in yet. I don't know why they wouldn't. Well, if it's um, that easy, why'd they not find it out in testing, mate? I, like, well, <laughs> I, I guess I guess the answer to that is because the poor poising um, didn't guess, yeah. come out properly in, in testing because the way that they, they, they model, they have to use like models and stuff and um, they can't actually run the full car in in like the, the wind tunnel. So they, they didn't see it coming as lots of teams didn't. I... Um, I think you've done a good analysis in terms of where Mercedes are at, to be honest, Angus. So I won't. I don't want to just repeat what you've said. At the end of the day, we're going to Barcelona next, and Wait. if you'd like, I think yeah. it's a great time to for Mercedes to assess whether or not their car has a future, because it all started in Barcelona. If you think about it, at the very, very beginning of the seasons, with all the cameras switched off, and we weren't supposed to see what was going on. It all started in Barcelona and Mercedes had a radically different car design. So they're now coming back to Barcelona with ironically a radically different car design to the one that they originally rolled out for, for the preseason testing. But this one looks really difficult to drive and it's time to assess really whether or not the mentality behind the Mercedes car is the right one because the problem they've got at the moment is they've gone with a design where you maximise the floor. And because of that, because they're trying to get that downforce to be created through the floor only, then the porpoising starts 
at a much lower speed, which is what the problems have been for them. That's why they can't get up to speed because they've they've got this big damage then coming in from the the sheer number of impacts that the car has on the ground because they get porpoising much lower speeds, so more porpoising than other teams. So given that we're going to Barcelona, and given that Toto Wolff has now said, "Oh well, we've got a we've got the you know the solution, the key to the our success is round the corner." then I think this will be a make-or-break weekend, really. Because if it doesn't work for them this year, then I can't see them bringing in another, uh, you know, uh, the same style of car next year. So I, I think it's just unfortunate, really, that Mercedes has ended up in a situation where they probably do, and I'm sure they do, have a fantastic car on paper, but they just can't get it to work within the scope of the regulations and if this was 1975 or 1980s they would have come out with some sort of radical like aero change or something like that that would allow them to to make it work maybe they'd fit some new type of of spring dampening system to it or active suspension you know unfortunately we are in the age of formula one where things are very very restrictive you don't get the fan car for example anymore which is a real shame, to be honest. Or the the Tyrrell six wheeler. I mean, imagine if Ferrari, if Mercedes turned up to Barcelona and was like, "Oh, by the way, guys, the solution to our problem is adding two more wheels to the car." Like <laughs> that, that would be absolutely ridiculous, and and it's a real shame we don't have that anymore. So I think at the end of the day, they're going to have to turn up to Barcelona, see how they're doing, and go right. We're getting near the um the summer break. We're gonna have to either scrap this design or bring in those good upgrades. So, and I hope it's, I hope it's the latter option. I hope they bring in the upgrades, to be honest. But they're they're doing pretty well for a team that I suppose is is having to make do and mend every single weekend. Mm. It's more than solid foundations for sure. Now, I question when Toto Wolf says they know the solution to the problem, whether that means that A, as he'd probably hope and Mercedes fans and drivers would hope, that it's going to turn them into a rocket ship Ferrari Red Bull powertrain car. But I hazard a guess and think that perhaps they've solved an issue in terms of making it really good at street circuits or really good at a power circuit. So the question is, with two street circuits coming up and a hybrid of the two after in Baku followed by an out-and-out power circuit in Canada, the next four races, I think, are really key to seeing where Mercedes' strengths will lie if they have any strengths moving forwards. Because if they storm, well, I say storm, do a lot better than they've previously done at Barcelona, Barcelona get themselves, let's say, two or one drivers comfortably on the podium, give a run uh, for their money when it comes to Mercedes, when it comes to Ferrari, sorry, and Red Bull. You go, oh, okay, okay. Um, street circuits, then that's obviously where they're going to be really good. Roll on Hungary if you're a fan of Mercedes. Roll on. Uh, Singapore, it's going to be a fantastic time. But then again, if they if there's no improvement, and once again we see them sort of stuttering, spluttering it somehow, getting themselves up to, I don't know, 5th and 6th, then you go, okay, we'll have to go and wait till Baku. But then if nothing comes at Baku or nothing comes at Canada, you go, well, 
the upgrades aren't coming then. And we've been told so many times by the uh, sort of Mercedes, Hamilton, Russell fan club, oh, they're just sandbagging. They will, they will get up there. They will. And you should never rule them out of the constructors. Never, never, never. Well, I think really the next four races are make or break really because yes, you'll be nine races into a rather long season in excess of 20 races. But you're then asking a team to essentially pull a rabbit out of the hat in the summer, work night and day for the break there and just bring the car back from 2021, uh, let it adhere to the new regulations and just hope, uh, among hope, that you can just get a 1-2 for the rest of the season. So, eyes on Mercedes, I think, is my underlying point or thought over the next four races. A long time to keep your eyes on Mercedes, granted, but I think that's where we'll see, or that period is where we'll see where Mercedes really are come the end of the season, because I think there's no chance, in my view he says, of McLaren catching Mercedes. It's whether Mercedes can pull themselves closer to first and second Ferrari and Red Bull or, dare I say, overtake it, which I think is somewhat unlikely uh, at this current point. But we know how well my comments tend to age, so I'll say mm-hmm. at the moment. Surely it's it's over for, for Mercedes at the moment. For the constructors, yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Oh, yeah, for sure. 100%. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I it's just I, yeah. I can't see them get clawing back the points. That's that's the problem. And then where does that leave them? You know, I suppose that that is the ideal scenario for for Mercedes that they by the end of the season perfect this year's car. Because to me that sounds yeah. like a a real problem though going forward because that that's like a team like Williams, for example, will do that. By the end of the season they'll perfect their you know, turd of a car. And then and then the next series go you know, occurs, the next year occurs, and they're all the way at the back again. Mercedes's dominance was fueled by the fact that they were so far ahead of the team the other teams um in sort of that two thousand and fourteen period that by the time two thousand and twenty came up, that they had they had had a massive run of successes culminating that final 2020 year and obviously we know in 2021 that that Lewis Hamilton wouldn't win the world championship but they would Mercedes would still take the constructors surely at the moment because they're a, they're on the back foot they're just going to keep being on the back foot for a while longer maybe years longer I mean, it's distinctly possible. I'd say if I was Mercedes at this point, the best I'd be hoping for is to solve the problems they have and to fully understand the car, which you'd have thought is, you know, your sort of basic gravy when it comes to Mercedes at least. But they've got to really be thinking we could maybe, if we really pull our act together and all the upgrades go really well, we could, in inverted commas, nab second. And I think then that's probably the best they can hope for. And to use a sort of footballing analogy, it's like getting stacked five goals in the first half and then somehow clawing it back to 5-4 and going, well, we ra- actually, we ran them really close, so this hasn't been a bad season, so look at the score. But in reality, it's got to be more about a learning process, I think, versus anything else. Because I suppose we have seen, you know, through the years in Formula 1, the big teams can fluctuate while the rules stay the same. You know, Ferrari, for example, went from doing splendidly well to, you know, doing awfully in terms of, uh, I believe it's the 2020 season. Granted, that was somehow influenced, or somewhat influenced, should I say, by the, the, the penalty and the fine they got for the, well, essentially illegal car they have. But there is some latitude, I'd say, between the top three. But I feel that Mercedes need to make sure they are truly in that top three versus being 
in well third place still but outside of the the bubble of the two so keeping up with the top two and hopefully overtaking second place whoever that may be has to be the aim now which I don't think I'd be saying after the culmination of last season. Well, the fun just keeps on coming in this early part of the F1 2022 calendar, doesn't it? A hop, skip and a jump from the great Miami Grand Prix we had there uh, to Spain, of course. A circuit which um, there were a few similarities I pointed at uh, last race and I thought yeah, it could be to Miami's advantage. We could have a rather good race there. Obviously, fact checkers can say with some confidence we did not, regardless of the headline saying thrilling Grand Prix. But the only reason we can look back at uh, last season with some hope is the fact that there was actually a rather tight race in some capacity between two teams. It culminated in Hamilton in first, Max in second, Bottas third, Perry, um, sorry, excuse me, Leclerc in fourth, and Perez in fifth. We know if they changed to uh, turn 10 in 2021. No new changes coming in this season, unfortunately. What do we make of Spain? Do we think Spain can redeem itself? I personally think it's a rather boring Grand Prix and have set the bar very low on my own personal expectations, as I have with the Grand Prix that follows it, Monaco. But what do you guys think? Can Spain really produce a decent race? Or was last year with the semi-fight we got as good as it's really going to get at that Grand Prix or circuit? Blimey, Miami, then we've got Barcelona, and then we've got Monaco. Hey, treated. I know, I know, and I know that lots of people out there are going to be like, did you just add Monaco to your sighing? Yes, I did, because it's a boring race as well, spoiler alert. Um, Yeah, although the Monaco historic Grand Prix was um on Sunday, and then if you saw... That Charles Leclerc, unfortunately, the curse of him at Monaco it occurred again in, in Nicky Lauda's Ferrari and he crashed it, which I think was pretty darn devastating um, for mm. him. He, he said he had a brake failure, which I'm not surprised given those cars are effectively go-karts on steroids, <laughs> which is a real shame. I don't want to talk about Barcelona, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm sidetracking the old Barcelona issue. <laughs> um, so that was an interesting development. On, on Sunday, that historic Grand Prix. Great show, by the way. If you haven't seen it, um, it's one of the very, I don't know, Formula One-esque things you can watch pretty much free. Um, so if you go onto YouTube, it should be there. I think Goodwood was streaming it um, and and loads of people had it on online, which is really nice. It'd be nice if more um, Grand Prix, real Grand Prix were perhaps free. Maybe the Barcelona one could be free because they don't, no one wants to go watch it. Um, which is a real shame, really, because the city of Barcelona is absolutely fantastic. If you've never been, um, I would highly recommend going. Um, unfortunately, it's got that track attached to it, which was supposed to be improved last year. They they made a couple of upgrades to it. Upgrades are in um, inverted commas there because they weren't really all that effective, I don't think. Do you think they were effective? What do you think? No, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> no, um, and actually, what made it exciting wasn't the track at all. It was the fact that we had that chase, didn't we, between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, and and Lewis ended up pitting, um, well, pipping uh, Max to the post at the end there, which was great. So you know, if you listen back to the podcast last year, you will hear us going, "Wow, we had an exciting." Barcelona Grand Prix but I feel like that was kind of a unicorn race which is a mm. bit of a shame really it's a bit like I suppose to to think about Monaco it was a bit like when Daniel Ricciardo in, in Red Bull his um his 
electrical power unit failed with Sebastian Vettel chasing him down in the in the Ferrari. And so that was a nail biting end to the Monaco Grand Prix. But Ricardo ended up winning, spoiler alert, because uh, he, he well, no one can overtake a Monaco. So even with 80 horsepower down, he survived um, to take the win. And it's and unfortunately, though, in Barcelona, um, you know, <laughs> Max couldn't stop um Lewis getting past because it's you know it is a decent track in terms of like its size but it's just boring and the reason it's boring is because it's it's a pretty bog standard tilka track it's got those sort of fixed radius corners attached to it so there is only one line you drive to it around that corner and then it's got the fast straight where the DRS will allow you to get past and then there's no real I don't want to say there's no skill involved because I think that's disingenuous and doing a disservice to Formula One drivers. But if there was a track where the drivers could kind of just coast and relax, it would kind of be sort of Barcelona. It's no Suzuka or Singapore, for example, which are brilliant. Mm. So I'm not necessarily looking forward to it, I must admit. But if you fancy watching some bizarre Formula One action that isn't you know, and you get a bit bored during the Barcelona race. Watch Sebastian Vettel on BBC Question Time, which he was on on Thursday. Mm. He made a surprise appearance there, so mm. you know that that was that's really interesting. And he talks about British politics, which we're not going to talk about on this show because that's contentious. Or if you haven't watched Eurovision yet, that's also I'm sure on demand in your local streaming <laughs> countries. And the United Ugh. Kingdom didn't come last which far, far from it amazing from uh, did it. you guys watch it <laughs> no absolutely not oh yeah of course of course Angus it got to the point <laughs> it got to the point where the jury votes where we got so many points so early that i was we were getting what like one or two points in Mo- moldova latvia that may be wrong but from some countries like, oh how dare you that's a really disrespectful <laughs> mind we got none only giving year. him to two points exactly granted we hardly get into the double figures uh with some coup indeed but i've just remembered actually i'm not too sure why eurovision has sparked my mind but if i'm not mistaken didn't maldonado win at the spanish grand prix in 2012 yes Ah, there we go. How does that come from Maybe Eurovision? Maybe another unicorn is due. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about like surprise, oh, like surprise miracles. Exactly. So exactly, Mick Schumacher yes. to win the Spanish Grand Prix next Sunday. Okay, that would that Let's would see. be a, that Imagine. would be absolutely nuts. I mean, I, I, well, but I, I mean, to, to, for 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 the UK to get ten points was amazing. The fact that we got twelve points from France was well, we we were because no, I was at a party and we were just going nuts. People started yelling yep. "Viva la France," which I thought was. Uh, very funny and um lots of great things to watch at the moment but the barcelona grand prix it might well <laughs> be a bit of a snooze fest um unfortunately so now i'm sitting in a situation in this podcast where i'm talking about two things which i absolutely detest one being eurovision one being the spanish grand prix okay so now so now which is worse um i've just i'm trying to give myself some optimism i'm looking at the weather forecast for barcelona nope it's sunny as always so no chance of rain um, that's one thing which won't happen. The track's been updated last year. Did it make a difference? In a word, no. Um, is the title battle at least exciting, which should provide a good backdrop to the race? Yes, and that happened last year. We had two drivers at the top of their game in Verstappen and Hamilton, and that definitely made for a more interesting race than had been um, seen in previous years. So that is something positive. You can really hear me trying to emphasise the bright side <laughs> here. 
Anything else? I mean, the Spanish fans will be out in force for Carlos Sainz and Fernando Alonso, so I'm sure it'll be a great atmosphere. Possibly oh, yeah. will be possibly will be the first. I think because last year's race was this race usually falls around my birthday every year. It was around about mid-May, and I like to think that the race hadn't yet had fans allowed back because the pandemic was still in in like that stage of the pandemic you know so I don't know if we had a full Spanish Grand Prix last year so maybe this year will be the first Grand Prix in Spain in three years with a full grandstand which should be nice I reckon not nice for the Spanish people the viewers who are at the race because it'll be boring but um, anyway once in a lifetime experience anything else it's it's up there with one of the dullest races of the season honestly and I, I'm not selling it to any of our listeners am I but at the same time, it's probably up there with Monaco. In and I hate saying that because I think Monaco is brilliant, the track and everything. But it's just, there's not much to look forward to at this race. You never know. There might be an anomaly. There might be a race which really stands out. There might be safety cars overtaking. Maybe, you know, the new regulations, we forget they're new, they're still new because we've got used to them now, but the regulations allowing cars to follow more closely, maybe they'll have an effect. You like to think Spain's the type of circuit which these regulations were designed for. It's a circuit which does not encourage overtaking, really, or has not produced good races with overtaking in the past. So maybe we'll see a positive effect and maybe the racing will be better. I feel like it made a difference in Australia. It made a bit of a difference in Imola, so maybe it'll make a bit of a difference in Spain, which again is notoriously um, known for being difficult to overtake at. So, in summary, not many positives to look forward to for this race. There are a few, but we'll just have to see how it goes, I guess. I reckon the Formula 2 might be a better watch, to be honest. That's always a always tends to be a good watch, but we can hope for the Formula 1. I think I'm not, to be honest, I say that, I think I'm not even going to be watching it. I think I'm on a train at around that time. Uh, the race is happening, or I'll be in, around London. But if I miss an absolute perler of a race, I'm sure I'll regret it. But will I miss a will I miss a perler? Realistically, I don't think so. The one positive to take really from Spain, I think, is that it will end. It will end. <laughs> <laughs> the country or the Grand Prix? <laughs> Which part? I'll, I'll stick for the Grand Prix for now. Yeah. Shall I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, blimey! Yeah, I, I, it's a shame. It's a real shame that we sit here and we. We joke about how it's the you know the one of the more boring race of the season because it it would be nice if it wasn't and I don't know I just think where where could we go instead you know, what what could we do to inject a bit more fun into the season if we removed it because I believe well last year or maybe the year before on this podcast I think. We said that why don't you keep Barcelona as the testing track? Keep it on in that in that format. Maybe keep it as a reserve, and then go mm. somewhere else instead. Because if there's one thing that we've seen through the pandemic and that silly season of 2020, there is so many good tracks out there that I'm sure we'd love to see instead. It pops to my mind, like Magello was good. Mm. And Turkey. Turkey, fantastic, with our iconic Turn 8. There are other fantastic tracks to be seen 
And um, well, for the for the laugh, we could always chuck them around Snetterton, right? Which is teeny <laughs> tiny, um, just to see how they do. Or Brands Hatch, which um, if you don't know, they're like little UK tracks, part of the Formula Four season here. You know, ch- so I, I I jest, but we you know we could send them to different tracks and not stick them around Barcelona, where we know kind of how they're going to perform because of the. The preseason testing, granted that this year is going to be different, isn't it? Because no one turned up to Barcelona preseason testing with the car that they were going to be actually running. Mercedes, you know, t- jumps out there, or even sort of Ferrari and, and Red Bull. You know, their testing later on didn't look anything like the cars in in Barcelona. But we're stuck with it, which is a bit of a shame because it would just be sod's law, wouldn't it? That of all like the, I suppose, historic European tracks or European tracks we used to, you know, uh, Spa would end up going or um, Monza would end up going and we'd be left with Monaco because that will never go, Barcelona, um, which is, it would be a big shame really because we don't need Barcelona. We could have a different track and it would be brilliant. But I think even with that, we still have to sit here and do our predictions, don't we? Because this wouldn't be a preview episode without that sort of final putting your neck out and um, putting your name on the line if you'd like. Who do you think is going to do well at the Barcelona Grand Prix? I would say, uh, yeah, not Mick Schumacher. I'm going to say the wait for points is going to go on. And I also think, I don't like predicting people to have a stinker, but I'm going with it now. I also think that... I'm going to say that George Russell's going to have his first poor race of the season. Not poor as in, like, terrible, but just poor in comparison to the high standards he's set already. You know, maybe he has a he has a low-key qualifying, doesn't do as well. Maybe he comes home in, like, 8th or ninth. Are we saying who does well? Are we, are we predicting the winner and the podium, or what would you prefer? Yeah. It can be whatever you want it to be, I guess. But oh, also brilliant. not necessarily the winner, but in terms of, like, maybe the midfield teams, you might... I think, okay, if we had two drivers to do well... I think Fernando Alonso is going to do well. I think he's had a, a year with a couple of mistakes, a bit of bad luck, but he has been driving well overall. But I think he's going to be driven, have that extra support from the home crowd, and I think he's going to do really well. And I also think that... I won't pick the second Spanish driver. I think that Kevin Magnussen is going to do... No, I'm taking that back. I think Pierre Gasly is going to do really well. I think he is overdue a good result. I feel like he's been driving... Last year he was solid in both quali and the race, but I feel like he's been more solid in quali this year with a bit of bad luck in the race. But also, I mean, for example, in Miami with his like being punted off by Fernando Alonso, then admittedly not uh, looking where Lando Norris was going. But I think that <laughs> Gasly will have a good one. So I think Gasly and Alonso to have a good one. And I'm saying George Russell and Mick Schumacher to have less good weekends interesting I just have a funny feeling I don't know why but I feel like Carlos Sainz is going to win this race That wow that is a bold prediction for Spain any reasoning I just I just feel that he's got over that sort of dip in form via the two retirements I feel that he's got himself back on the horse so to speak he was quite unlucky I think really in Miami he did everything right in terms of clean racing with Max, but Max just got the best row of him, and I feel he's he's due really a rather good, a uh, good race and a win. I just feel that the cards are going to fall very much in his his favour for once. 
I feel we're due another Max Verstappen retirement, you know. I feel we're due another one. I don't think it's due to reliability. I think there's going to be a bit of a prang, a bit of a crash, a bit of a safety car. So that's one for good, one for bad. I think it's going to be another rotten weekend for Gasly. He's in a bit of a dip in form currently, isn't he, in terms of the retirement last one, the 12th, before the retirement, well, I suppose if you go all the way back to um, Bahrain. It's not been a great season. I don't think it's going to carry on. Um, in terms of driver that's going to do well, I think his teammate Sonoda is due a good one. Um, because he had the bad luck of not starting in Saudi, got eighth and ninth, eighth and seventh, sorry. Uh, so far the season, he's starting to get to grips with the car quietly, slowly, sort of under the radar. So yeah, those are my predictions as such. But um, nice and vague the last, the last. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting because you both not said Lewis Hamilton, and Hamilton mm, traditionally does very well at Barcelona. It's a track that he's very, very confident at. Unfortunately, he has had a couple of collisions, most notably with a certain Nico Rosberg. Never <laughs> yeah. forget that particular um, course, race, yeah. which ended up allowing Max Verstappen, if my memory serves me correctly, to win his Grand Prix in the debut race for Red Bull. I'm looking at Angus, really, because he, he, he usually is the oracle of, of those niche knowledge. 2016, correct. Good. I knew I knew you would know because I'm I'm digging this out from from my brain. But I know you you have a you have a knack of remembering that needless knowledge. So I I think but I think Hamilton's really good here. I think this is his one of his tracks that he has in in his bank, um that he he knows how to do very well at, and so I think he's going to beat Russell here. I say that now, and of course we're going to be like, oh, you predict Hamilton to do well, <laughs> um. But I I you know we <laughs> know I think he is very good at it. And I think, you know, if I go from the statistics, he, he looks like he's going to be strong. And I think he's going to make that bounce back, especially if Mercedes bring those upgrades and get the porpoising under control. I don't I don't see any reason why he won't do very well here. Of course, yeah. we, we've got the safe bets right between Leclerc and, and Verstappen. Mm. I think I think Verstappen's going to out of the two. I think Verstappen might take it, might take the win because he's also very good here. And... I think Leclerc's going to be still, um, yeah, he's going to his head's not going to be in the right place after the his unfortunate event in in Monaco. I think it's going to shake him a bit, shaken him a bit. So maybe you're right. Maybe this is the moment for a certain certain Carlos Sainz to yeah, yeah, well to 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 hunt him down and and, and take that victory finally over Leclerc for the first time this season. I really hope that. That Angus, you're incorrect, and that Schumacher does really well. <laughs> I'd like him to do well, at least get one point, because then that would match um, Zhou Guan Yu's current um, position. And then I could say, ha ha ha, I told you so. Um, so that would be good. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I think we're going to have the same old. I think Latifi's going to cause some sort of safety car. I don't think sure. Stroll's going to do very well because the uh, the Aston Martin isn't particularly good, although they say they're bringing upgrades. And I really hope Sebastian Vettel does well. Although if he doesn't and he leaves his um, Formula One career behind him, I'm sure he's got a bright future as a as a UK political pundit. I'm sure we'll welcome him with open arms to uh, that new genre that he's he's found himself in. New genre of entertainment, if you'd like. Hmm. So, yeah, I think we're going to get kind of the usual suspects. But I think a surprise not very good for us will be Lando Norris. 
And it seems that's all we have time for in terms of episode 12 of FON in Review. Thank you very much for tuning in, be that via your preferred podcast provider, or whether you're listening via River Radio, be that live or via the Listen Back feature. You can follow myself, Tristan, and FON in Review on Twitter. The handle for FON in Review is just like that. All one word, no spaces, no hyphens, no nothing as it was. Now we look forward, he says, checking his notes to round six of this season to Spain. That's next on the calendar in terms of qualifying that's at 3pm on Saturday in terms of uh, British summertime whether you're watching in the UK that is and then the race is an hour earlier and a day later that being 2pm Sunday and that's once again British summer time so when we return next week we're going to be unpacking a rather exciting weekend of F1 action no doubt and also discussing what comes up between now and then in terms of wider topics of Formula 1 being that the next few races the end of the season next season and whenever the gods of Formula One, Liberty Media and Co. decide to go and drop on our doorstep all ready for the next episode, episode 13. But as I said, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to speaking to you this time next week. Goodbye.